You are listening to the message by Antioch Center for the Nations. For more information, please visit www.antiochcenterforthenations.org. Thank you. I want to put the title of our message up, The Adoption. God's children by choice, not default. In other words, you know, if we think about divorce and, I mean, uh, adoption, and we think about life, uh, there's a lot of different ideas about it, but this word simply means, uh, and there's, a, there's a Greek word to it, you can put it up, uh, the hiothesia, it's from kios, which means son, and, and titemi, to place or allocate properly, sonship, legally made a son, or adoption. In other words, it is, it is simply the word that means to place a son in a home. If your son is born in your home, that son is not adopted. That son is your son or that daughter. But if the child was not originally a part of that home, then he is placed. And that's where the Greek word comes from and where we use the word adoption. If you adopt someone, that person is not originally a part. And so we're going to look at the analogy of this as the Bible looks at it. And I know that, that all of us are estranged and foreign to God as sinful humanity. In other words, we were born in sin. Our origins are that of a tainted existence. We know the story of Adam and Eve and what the, the sin that occurred, and then through the blood we have all received that sin. But God, as a merciful and compassionate Father, has, has offered us an existence in His home, even though the natural circumstances of our birth or our origins should alienate us eternally. So we really don't have any right to be the children of God except for the fact that adoption has taken place. And so this word appears throughout the scriptures, and that's what we're going to focus on tonight. And I have uh, I've not been adopted myself. I was born of my mother by my father in the home, so I am a, uh, what may be called an original son of the house. We did not adopt anyone. My wife, however, was adopted, and so was her sister. And uh, her story is really amazing because it's more than simply adoption. In fact, it illustrates clearly the kind of adoption the Bible talks about. Because what happened with Barbara was that uh, a showgirl was impregnated by um, a famous musician in Las Vegas, and when she had become pregnant, this showgirl later moved to Los Angeles. And in Los Angeles, she had this baby, and she decided to abort the baby when she found out she was pregnant and could feel the baby forming inside. So she went to the doctor. This is, of course, in the 1960s, 1968, 67, when the pregnancy began. And while she went to the doctor, the doctor began to plead with her not to destroy the baby but that, in fact, she could gain money or earn money by allowing or becoming a surrogate or carrying the mother, I mean, carrying the baby within her as its mother until the day of birth, and then she could give it up for adoption. And he was able to persuade her more because of the funding. Now, it's, it wasn't a standard adoption case, because in standard adoption in the United States in the 1960s, the laws allowed certain people, still to this day, you have to be eligible to adopt. Not just anybody can adopt. There's some very strict guidelines. Well, back then, those guidelines crossed into the realms of 
race and issues that we have pretty much uh, obliterated from our law systems today. But back then, they did not allow a mixed couple to adopt a child. But Barbara's mother and father, in fact, were a mixed couple because of their different religions, the father being Jewish and the mother being from Church of England and because she was English. And so therefore, as they fell in love during the Second World War and the devastation where they were eating orange peels to survive and her mother went through, had some really harrowing stories about the hardships of Europe in the Second World War and what she went through, her father, Barbara's adopted father, was there as a soldier and fell in love with this English girl and the romance went to the point where they decided to get married and they migrated back to the United States and they were excited to start a family after the war but it, they proved to be incapable of having children and so they tried to adopt and they went to an adoption agency whereby they found out that the laws did not allow them to adopt because they were a mixed couple which in today's economy of intelligence, we know that that does not apply, and we have done away with that, but then it saddened them greatly because they desperately wanted children. And so there was a system of doctors across the United States then that were working on behalf, illegally, working on behalf of parents that wanted to adopt but were not legally capable of doing so. And that network of doctors involved that doctor in Los Angeles that talked Barbara's biological mother into not aborting her, but in fact bringing her full term. When the time was right, of course money was offered, money would be paid. When the time was right, the Barbara was born and the baby uh, was kept. The mother did not care about the child at all, but left her in the same diaper for many days. She had rashes on her body when, the, when she was finally taken from the mother, but Barbara's adopted parents flew all the way to Los Angeles and gathered baby, made the payment, and certain legal documents were signed, and they took the baby home. And that was the last time for many, many years until after the death of Barbara's adopted parents that she had ever seen Barbara. Well, looking at the picture of this in analogy, of course, Barbara's parents loved her very much. The adopted parents adored her. She was the typical Jewish princess. Anything she could ever want, she could have. And they loved her and called her Bobby. And she was so sweet and cute, the kind of little girls that dance on tables and restaurants and smile and everybody adores her. And her baby pictures are astoundingly adorable. She was so cute. And uh, of course, she's of mixed race and says she's half Chinese, half Irish. Because her mother, her biological mother is Irish, but her father was Chinese Hawaiian, but full Chinese, who was a famous singer, Don Ho, who did tiny bubbles in the wine. Like he did, the, he's, he owned a lot of Honolulu. Uh, don't worry, she did try to contact him, whereby a lawsuit was threatened. And as you know, those things were looking to be swept. I'm sure he had a lot of illegitimate children floating around the world. But the picture of this was someone who did not belong, who was rejected and thrown out, being redeemed for a price. And that a little baby named Barbara was bought with money so that she not perish. And that the analogy of salvation is so clear. The analogy of what the Bible speaks about. And Barbara has a deep comprehension 
of what God has done for her because her life is a parable of that truth. And it's a beautiful story to hear and, of course, see. And I've, I've always liked to talk, tell people that story. But there's a lot of misconceptions also about adoption and what it means. There's a stigma about adoption where some people may decide that an adopted child is not really a child of the house, not a true son, not a true daughter, one who is not of blood origins within that family, so therefore they are an, an inauthentic person. Of course, that's, a, that's an erroneous stigma. Sometimes even parents who adopted children will look at the adopted children differently. I think that's an injustice to the child. But in healthy homes, a child who is adopted is basically a child that is chosen instead of just born. And therefore, from that perspective, psychologically, would be of even greater value because that child was chosen. Now, we start to see the picture of why the Apostle Paul and other writers in the scriptures use this term adoption to describe our relationship with God. Because we were estranged from him. We are not technically a part of his family. We were separate from that. And he has chosen us. It's not like he has to, but he made a choice. And that's what's really so beautiful about it. So to apply this idea to the case of God the Father's adoption of us is 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 important and we need to focus on this so the first thing we see concerning an adoption in the bible is that god's adoption of the israelites as a people took place in other words you would say well then the originals were the israelites and later on god um uh adopted us and some people have that mentality but biblically that's not true biblically the same word is used to describe the israelites and their relationship with god because he said, I will gather people for myself, and he called them. He chose Abraham and said, leave your father's house. He adopted Abraham and therefore all the descendants of Abraham that became the Israelites as we know them today. So later on, we, the Gentiles, were also adopted. And so I want us to, to study this concept. And we're going to see five things about our adoption. And we begin with the first one. Number one, we have an obligation to the spirit of adoption. There is a spirit, which is the Holy Spirit, that operates through all of this. The adoption agency, if you would, is run by the Holy Spirit. It is the spirit that brings conviction on man's heart. The Father wills from heaven that you would in your heart know who Jesus is. And unless the Father reveals that, Flesh and blood cannot, and the Spirit is the agent through which this adoption begins. Romans chapter 8, verse 12. The scripture says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. So the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. So the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. Now, notice they use a strong word here in the passage, which is obligated. We have an obligation 
But it's not to the flesh. It's not to the natural. In the flesh, you're born of earth. You're born of mother, father, and biological people. But there's a spirit birth. Remember, Jesus referred to it as a second birth unless you're born again. So your first birth counts for practically nothing. But yet that's the birth that everyone emphasizes and points to and says is important. That I am of such a family, or this name, or that name, or they may even focus on Jewish heritage, or the lineage from a fine family. And that's, that's noble, but it really has no standing in the spiritual realm. It has no importance in eternity. All that really matters is your association with the Lord Jesus Christ to the Father. And this adoption starts with that. Our obligation, therefore, is not to the flesh. Our obligation is not to fleshly families. Our obligation is to the Spirit of God that is upon us, the very Spirit of adoption, the one that causes such an intimacy that we can call him Daddy, and we can relate to him in that capacity. So we're obligated to live by the Spirit because of the adoption that has taken place. When God placed us in his family, he transformed us into spiritually cognizant beings. We pass from out of death into life. When we do, our minds are open. The Spirit then, because we have the mind of Christ, the Spirit is in us. We begin to see and understand things about our Father in heaven that we never could before. We're no longer ignorant concerning a life lived in spirit. So, it is the Spirit that testifies and proves us that we are truly adopted, even as we're seeing in that passage. And there's so many elements really here uh, that we see that I identified seven things in this one passage, seven key elements of Spirit adoption. Number one, the Spirit gives the adopted one power to put to death the misdeeds of the body. One of the first benefits we have from our spiritual adoption is we are given power to conquer the power of sin. Sin controls people. Sin rules people's lives. They cannot do what is right. They cannot make those choices. But we do have the power through adoption to put to death those misdeeds, to stop the things that other people cannot stop. Not that we always yield to it. But it is part of our inheritance. Remember, this whole context is spoken of as an inheritance. So we can inherit the power to stop doing the things that lead to death. And that is a benefit. The second thing, the Spirit of God leads the adopted children. There's a leadership. There's a guidance that takes place from the Spirit. At the point we receive Jesus, the Spirit is employed as our helper, takes us by the hand and begins bringing us down a path. If we yield, if we fight, resist, and pull away, he will not fight us back. But if we yield and follow, he leads us. Number three, the spirit you receive does not control the adopted child. It's a reference to slavery. And the slave, you're, you control them. You tell them exactly what to do. The spirit is the gentleman that's not forcing you. The Spirit is uh, your friend who is suggesting at all times, but he's not shoving you, he's not pushing you. It's not to say that there are not moments that God will relegate you to something by circumstances. Ask Jonah. You know, he was forced by circumstances to end up fulfilling the mandate of God. But in this particular case, the spirit you received in the New Testament, the way that we live, it does not control the adopted child. 
In other words, when you adopt a child, you wouldn't adopt it so that it can be a slave in your home. You adopt it so that it can have a family atmosphere in life and love and be equal to the sons. Now, before, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. So that spirit is the one that actually causes the the process of adoption to take place. Number five, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit. This is a communication where your spirit is talking to the spirit of adoption. And this term is used throughout the Bible, but specifically has its roots in what Paul is teaching here. So our spirit and his spirit bear witness with each other, and the adoption has made that possible. Number six, the spirit is intimate with the adopted ones, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. That intimacy that we would call him Daddy also happens because of the spirit of adoption. So many wonderful benefits, the key elements of of our spirit adoption. And seven, the spirit is our inheritance now. And that's where it states very clearly that we are not just um, slaves, but we are heirs to what is coming, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. That means if we are co-heirs with Christ, we have a sort of eternal koinonia or sharing that what Jesus has we have. That's why I said, I go so that you can be with me. I'll prepare a place for you that we will be together. He wanted us to be there with him in service. Of course, he's high and lifted up as God Almighty, but we are co-heirs with him, the Bible says which means we have an inheritance. We're no longer ignorant about these things. Let's go to number two. Adoption means the redemption of our bodies eternally. The passage continues in verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. So this is interesting because it's saying that we are waiting for this adoption. The adoption is taking place, but I want to explain this. The adoption is connected to the hope of the resurrection here. Because it says, for this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So our hope, the sonship, the redemption of our bodies, it says. So our adoption is the name of the process of of our reformation, what God is going to do. And adoption is not what we are currently in its its fullest expression. In other words, we have part of it. But we're coming, a time is coming where we will have a full adoption, complete adoption. But for now, it's like we're in the process. You're like a candidate for the fullness of what will come. Or better yet said by the writer of Hebrews that we have this inheritance in trust. If someone is very wealthy and they leave money to their child, they often will leave what? A trust fund, right? And a trust fund stipulates that that child, while they are a minor or before the designated age, has no access to that funding until they're properly prepared and ready for that at a time in life, and then that funding is released. Because why would you give $20 million to a 12-year-old and let him decide what he wants to do with it? You wouldn't do that. You hold it in trust. A bank or a group of lawyers holds it in trust for that day 
when the time comes. That's what our salvation is. That's what our bodies will be. Our full bodies, able to enjoy eternity, are held in trust until that day. But we're eagerly waiting for that. We hope for what we do not yet have. We wait for it patiently or sometimes impatiently. I think sometimes I get impatient. But the transition from this age to the next will reveal the adopted children as the king's own, that we will be the children of God. Uh, now, there's a, diff there's a reference here to first fruits that, part that talked about first fruits. Really, the Holy Spirit gives us a sample of life to come, where it says there, first fruits of the Spirit, we groan in relievers, we wait eagerly. That is a reference to actually Pentecost or the 50th day of time of the celebration of weeks. And in the New Testament, these feast of weeks was known by another name. But if you come forward seven weeks from the Passover, 49 days, the following day, the 50th day was known as Pentecost, which is when we received what? day of Pentecost, we received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So this is a reference to the manifestation of that. The Feast of Weeks, or First Fruits, was also known as the Feast of First Fruits, points us both to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the gift of the Holy Spirit. The great promise that he gives, it ties the two together. So uh, I will not leave you as orphans, is what he said. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Don't worry. That's the promise of the resurrection, that I'll come to you give you the Holy Spirit, that says in John 14, Christ is with us, that's worth celebrating. The celebration of the first, we have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, this longing, this yearning, this passion inside, we're waiting for the adoption to be complete. For in this hope we were saved. Why were you saved? What are you saved for? Just so that you can live a Christian life here on earth? That's really boring. That would be boring if that was the whole goal. If we, our motivation for living life in spirit on earth is the eternal reward. That's why you work. If you go to a job and work and labor, you don't do it if you're not expecting to get paid for that. So you go and labor knowing that you will receive recompense. You will get paid for your, your services rendered. It's like that in life. We live life in Christ, chased, separated. We make a choice to yield to this adoption, not because it's great life here on earth, which it is. He gives us abundant life, but because of a great reward that comes in eternity that is not worthy to be compared with what waits us there. The comparison, like it says in the scriptures, uh, you cannot even compare the great value of what's coming. So this passage is clear. We are redeemed or adopted for both here and then. We're redeemed as children here on earth that gives us spiritual rights over demons, that gives us spiritual rights as those who bear the testimony of Christ, even to the point of death. We love not our lives unto death. We carry that. We tell people truth. And that the authority that we have to do that comes also through the spirit of adoption because we're the heirs. We're the ones to whom it should matter most because that's our inheritance that's waiting for us there. So we speak about what Jesus has done for us in terms of those that share what he has received. We get that mentality. That's what adoption gives us. Number three, the adoption process began with Israelites. It started with Abraham. Romans chapter 9 verse 1 says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. 
I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Now this is that, that passion manifested in these words, that, which is to me insane. Paul never claimed to be sane. In fact, he claimed to be a fool in that regard because this is saying that he would just as soon go to hell if Israel could be saved. That's a great love for people. I love you, but I'm not going to hell for you. I'm not willing. If, if, if God told me right now, Stephen, if you go to hell, everyone in this room is guaranteed to go to heaven, I would say no. Sorry. And I'm not expecting you to do that for me either. We work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. But it just shows you a picture of how deeply Paul felt for the Israelites. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Now, these are the most positive words you will ever hear Paul speak about the Jewish community because he's speaking in regards to a heritage that was very old. Many other places you hear him saying the opposite, that they're of no great value and that we're all equal, which is true. But here he takes this moment to say, I want you to know that I am not an anti-Semite. I am a Pharisee, which he was trained as, as a super Jew. And he said concerning the law, more zealous than all of his contemporaries. So he was a great Jew. But he's saying, look, this does not matter as much. These are the things they have. They were the first adopted. We were the second adopted. But if we consider sometimes that the Israelites are the real children of God, we have that mentality and that we're adopted. But in actuality, we see here the adoption is theirs. So they were adopted, chosen by God, as we said. So the fact is that we are adopted too. And that all humans are responding to this adoption. They were just adopted before us, that's all. They beat us to it in history. But Jesus, as he did that, like he said, when they said to him, we have Abraham as our father, when he was seeking allegiance to him as Christ, he said, don't say you have Abraham as your father. He is able to raise up children from these stones, he said. So don't think that your heritage or your bloodline somehow uh, absolutely guarantees you anything. That's what Jesus meant. Therefore, their adoption, our adoption, we're all adopted. There are, there are many these days, however, and I like this passage, but I balance it with all the others because there's a lot of people these days that have been become increasingly focused on the Jewish culture as a standard to be emulated or copied, uh, especially in Indonesia, I've noticed. And in churches in Malaysia, you go to some of these churches and you would swear you were walking into a synagogue. I'm serious. They have Torahs and they have shofars everywhere and they have everybody's got head coverings on and prayer cloths. It's getting to the point where they are, you know, they get mad at you if you call Jesus Jesus because his name is not Jesus, it's Yeshua. And they will rebuke you. And they say, some go as far as to say that if you're praying in the name of Jesus, your prayers will not get answered because you're mispronouncing his name. I mean, it's just crazy. But that's because there's a spirit of Judaizing that's rising. And Jesus did not bring that spirit. Paul did not teach that spirit. 
Paul said that you are free. If whatever state you're born in, stay there. Be that. If you're Gentile, you're Gentile. Don't seek to become a Jew. And he said it, but somehow the churches that are doing this miss that entirely. The fact is that God has now chosen us with equal importance to the Jews. This is a passage in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, where it says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. So Paul's making it very clear. Even though he just said, hey, the Jews are great because they brought these things. He's speaking of a historical reference of those people that lived and did what they did. So we honor that, the history of them. But in today's standing with God Almighty, there is no value to being a Jew versus a Gentile. The rights are identical. The inheritance is the same. However, Jesus said to the Jews face to face because they did not accept his teachings. He said, your father is the devil. He told them to their face. Very extreme. They said, how is our father the devil? What are you talking about? You don't accept my teachings, he said. And if you don't accept my indoctrination of you, and if you don't become my disciples, he used the word mathetes with them, then you have no right or part in the kingdom of my father. So therefore, he's not your father. In fact, the devil is your father. And that's the day they picked up rocks and wanted to kill him too. He literally had to run away because they were going to kill him. It was such an aggressive message that he gave them. So don't say... That, well, Jesus has ordained that the Jews be the highest culture for us all to emulate and copy. It's quite the opposite. He said, many will come from the Gentile nations and take your place in the kingdom. So, Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, whether you're Jew or Gentile, sin is sin, and the blood has imputed that to you. So we all need the equal sacrifice of the Lamb of God. Only the Lamb's blood can take away that. And all are justified freely, it says. So we've sinned and fall short, but all are justified or made right, put in right standing, freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. So really it started with the Israelites, but our adoption is powerful. Number four, an adopted child is not a slave, but a legitimate heir. And there's a lot of people these days singing songs along this line. I am not a slave. You know, I'm, I'm a son. And yeah, that's good. We, we do serve the Lord. We can be a servant, but a child can be a servant too. I sure hope your children have chores in the house. One of the worst things, there's a, there's a problem right now in homes where children are not being given chores like they're. When I was a child, we had chores. We had a list of chores we must do. That teaches responsibility. That teaches work ethic. Uh, whether there is a reward for that or not, it teaches the child that you earn your keep and you work hard where you are. That's not being a slave. That's part of sonship. That's part of our children learning. But an adopted child is not a slave, but a legitimate heir, even though that heir has to serve in the kingdom. The scripture says in Galatians 4, verse 4, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons. 
God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Now here's Paul referencing the same thing he said a moment ago in Romans, but now to the Galatians, saying that the spirit he sent is the spirit of Jesus. So the Holy Spirit is the spirit of Christ. We have it in us, and it calls out through us, Daddy! So we are adopted and made heirs. We are legitimately that. You are no longer a slave, he says, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. So although I'm, I'm often heard speaking about our need to serve, and they were servants of God, we do understand that our capacity in service is that of a son or a daughter. And in fact, that will make you work even harder because you know you're working for what is yours. You're not just getting paid a salary. You're not getting paid just for that job, but you're working toward building an eternal realm that is yours, that you are an associate of Jesus, a co-heir, that those things that you work for are your inheritance. God has made you also an heir. And that's a beautiful picture. Don't think of yourself as less than an actual member of the family of God. You are a child of God with all rights and privileges included. This means that all that belongs to our Heavenly Father is yours, including celestial possessions and power. We just think of the kingdoms of this world, but my gosh, what does the Father own? He owns everything. The Bible says even this earth, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But I'm talking about beyond that, what the Hubble telescope is showing us these days. I'm talking about the, the planetary systems they're just recently discovering and the possible habitable planets that are out there. I don't know if they're habitable or not. I don't know if we will be able to survive long enough to have the technology sufficient to convey us to such places. I doubt it. We'll probably destroy ourselves before then or Jesus will return. But understand that that all belongs to God or you. You own the planets. Next time you look at the picture the Hubble telescope gives you or these images of these distant galaxies, say, yeah, it's mine. It's mine. I own that. Because it is your inheritance. And it's going to be given to us. I'm looking forward to it. I know that we're going to rule and reign with him on this earth for a thousand years, but beyond that, we're going to serve him day and night in his temple. And I sure hope I'm in charge of a galaxy or two. I think that would be a lot of fun. I'm, I know that I will be given the mental capacity to administrate those, those celestial realms and do those things. But, man, we have no idea. That's why it says it can't be compared with the glories to be revealed, what we live here on earth. But that is all part of our adoption. I know it's hard to wrap your mind around that, and it all sounds like science fiction, but it's not. It's fact. It's a fact. Really, these things are real. One day, Stephen always talked about that stuff. You're going to get there and you say, this is what he told us. He, remember he said, I didn't know he actually that I was going to be given galaxies to run. And exactly what he said, look, I'm in charge of this whole region of Ursa Major. And uh, he's from this point to this point, because believe me, if he took every one of his redeemed beings off of the planet and divided up what we know is the universe now that we can even perceive and see in equal portions, you have galaxies, many of them. You have a lot of work to do in an administration of these things. So look forward to it. Look forward to it. I realize you're not quite eligible for that position yet. 
but I think he's going to be able to upload some additional information into your brain once you have the glorified form. Amen? By the way, we're predestined to adoption. That's number five. We are. Ephesians 1. Praise, it says in verse 2, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Here we see very clearly this pattern of adoption. Again, he predestined us for adoption. Now, this means that not that you are by default predestined to be adopted, but that he made the choice to adopt you before the foundations of this earth. He already chose you. You're chosen. But it's also, it's helpful to see because people battle with the idea of their eligibility or their worth to God based upon who they are and what they are right now. But if the choices were made based upon your worth as a human, how could he have already made the choices before you existed? So there's a certain consolation comes from the fact that we have already been chosen. All we need to do is come in line with the adoption. He chose us. It's like we're like the little doggy in the window. How much is that doggy in the window? Do you ever go to see the little doggies and you look, oh, I want that little puppy and, you know, those brain farts that make you buy a dog that later you regret. I thank God we had this wonderful little dog in our house, which, by the way, I recommend this for you if you have children. Pet sit. Two weeks, my daughter was completely healed of any desire to have a dog because we put all of the tasks on her. She had to walk it. She had to feed it. She had to carry little plastic poo, poo bags out there and pick up turds. She had to do everything, and we kept on her, kept on her. We know what we're doing because she had been wanting a dog lately. Boy, this just passed uh, yesterday morning. They came to retrieve the dog. Sarah Jane was up bright and early teeth brush ready. Dog on leash. Are they coming? Are they coming? Yes. We went downstairs and they came. She's like, here, here's your dog. She gave it back. She, I said, and jokingly, I asked her, so Sarah Jane, you think you'd want a dog? Never. I thought, yes. Task accomplished. Just parenting skills. I'm, I'm giving you some suggestions here. We did that with a, with a sugar glider too. You know, those sugar gliders, these little things. She had one of those. She pets it for a little while. And that was just, think, it was only like a week and a half. And she was done with that. She likes the cat. We have a very low maintenance cat. It just exists. That's it. It doesn't meow at you practically. It doesn't rub on you. It doesn't really want you. It just exists, and I love it. That's the perfect pet. The biggest hassle is vacuuming up some hair. But whatever the case, when you choose a little doggy and you pick it out, it's your choice. The dog is then taken. You can go to the pound and adopt a cat. or not. That's how we got our cat. In fact, we adopted our cat. Our cat is a rescue cat. That's why it's so shy and scary and doesn't like to intermingle with people because it was abused when it was a kitten and it was left there. And my, my son specifically picked out that 
that particular cup. That is what God does. He just chooses according to his favor. He chooses before we even know what's happening. So you have been predestined. It's a good feeling to know that. He predestined us, destined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure, not your pleasure, and will. He had a will. He had a pleasure. He had a desire. He chose you to the praise of his glorious grace. In other words, you want to think something, think his grace. That's what it said. To the praise of his glorious grace, meaning the unmerited favor that he shows you that he's not looking for the quality people. He's not picking eligible basketball players for the team. He's not looking for the most skilled football players. He's just choosing people according to his unmerited favor, which is glorious. And that's what Paul is trying to say, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his body, the forgiveness of sins. Thank you, Jesus. In accordance with the riches of God's grace. In other words, according to that same unmerited grace, that's where our forgiveness comes from. That's where our redemption comes from. That he lavished on us. Lavishing on us. Whenever I think of lavished, I think of ladling gravy over potatoes, but too much gravy where you can't even see the potatoes anymore, which I do like to do. And that's lavishly ladling. That's how I picture grace in my life. Every morning I wake up, I go to the throne of lavish grace, and he ladles mercy over me. I just see it like dripping over me, a little chunk of onion in my eye, like that gravy just is going over me. I'm totally sopped with it, and I'm so grateful that I have it. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. There's that trust again. And he has so much for us, but he's waiting for you to catch up, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In accordance with his pleasure and will, it says. So it pleases God to lead us in the process of his eternal plan. That we are in the form right now. We're going through the motions, the process of his eternal plan, step by step. So God wants you to understand that you're not a stepchild. God wants you to understand that you're not a slave. God wants you to understand that you are not just a mercy case and therefore will never get the inheritance of the true children, but you get an equal share to whatever they get. You understand what that means? Abraham gets what I get. That's cool. Noah gets what I get. We are co-heirs with all these patriarchs because grace has given it. To be put into effect in the times to reach your fulfillment, he's going to do this. I'm so grateful. You're not second best to any other in his eyes. As a Gentile, you're not second best to any Jews. If you're a Jew, you're not second best to Gentiles. You're equal. As, uh, as any race, you're not second best. Not just black lives matter, but white, red, yellow lives. All lives matter equally to God. All lives. He has picked you out of the billions of people because he loves you. 
He has given you all the rights and privileges of a legitimate child of his house. And if there's no other reason for you to rejoice, this is enough. We are adopted. I say, Abba, Father. I say, Daddy. And I can say, when I say Daddy to Jehovah God, he says, yes, son. Not, what do you want? It's not a disturbance. Just like if my daughter says Daddy to me, I say, yes, dear. Immediately, Daddy. When she calls, I just, I'm there. I'm sure when your son calls you, you're like, yeah, whatever. Is he saying Daddy yet? Not quite. Oh, Mommy. Did he start saying Mommy yet? I actually got, I forgot which child. I got one of them to say Daddy before Mommy. But it took a lot of work. It took a lot of dedication. Like 12 hours a day. Dad, 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 dad. <laughs> legitimate child if that child cries out to you you answer it's the same we have that right with our father now these are the things we saw the adoption five things about adoption we have an obligation to the spirit of adoption now this means that because of all these things that God has done for you we have an obligation this is the great gift that he gave us. And remember, this is where the economy of repentance and righteous works comes in. That's kind of elusive to people. Our righteous works are not based upon what we earn, but our praise to God. So that the obligation we have to the Spirit for what the Spirit has already done for us by way of Calvary through the blood of what Jesus has done and the gift we have, our obligation is to turn our lives back in praise. We have that obligation to the Spirit, to live by the Spirit and make choices of righteousness based upon that. And we've been empowered to put to death the misdeeds of our error and our sin. Number two, adoption means the redemption of our bodies eternally. That adoption is what guarantees us the, the eternal suit. We're going to take off the earth suit and put on the eternal body, which will last forever. And it's perfect body. Uh, I can't wait to try it out. I'm sure it'll be better than the body I have now. I don't think any of us will look back and say, boy, I wish I had my earth body back. No, never. We're going to be so happy to have that eternal form. Number three, the adoption process began with Israelites starting with Abraham, but it comes all the way to us. They were the first adopted, but we were the second adopted, and we are all equal. An adopted child is not a slave, but a legitimate heir. Co-heir with Christ, in fact. Number five, we are predestined to adoption. How many of you are glad that you are predestined to adoption? I am. I'm so thrilled. Aren't we